0: Welcome to the January 2014 episode of the Nature Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Ailey Dalgan. This month, a new way to combat the renewal of cancer stem
1: cells. This could be uh, applied potentially to a variety of solid tumors
2: or subsets thereof.
0: How lung lesions in someone infected with tuberculosis
2: are surprisingly variable. We need to really have a lesional perspective in order to understand what we're going to need to do to build a TB vaccine.
0: The NIH's Alcohol Institute gets a new director and a therapeutic strategy for tackling kidney disease. But first, BMI, and I'm not talking about body mass index. BMI 1 is a gene known to regulate cancer stem cells. In people with liver and brain cancers, BMI 1 has been shown to help people propagate this subset of cancer initiating cells leading to tumor recurrence following anti-cancer therapy. Now, a team from the University of Toronto has shown that the same is true in colorectal cancer, too. And reporting in this month's issue of Nature Medicine, the researchers have even identified a chemical inhibitor that targets BMI1 and therefore inhibits the ability of colorectal cancer stem cells to self-renew. Study author Catherine O'Brien explains why her team decided to focus on BMI1 in the first place.
1: It was an established regulator of uh, normal intestinal cell self-renewal, and that was one uh, deciding factor. The other was that it's known to be upregulated in approximately 65% of uh, colon cancers. So those two factors uh, led us to believe that this might be a good target uh, looking to, uh, to therapeutically inhibit self-renewal.
0: And that turned out to be, in fact, what it was. Uh, how did you show that?
1: Uh, We demonstrated it using our um, xenograft models. We used actually in vitro and in vivo models. So these were the assays that are really the standard in the field, and we showed that uh, we could pretreat our cells in vitro for um, a couple of days, take off the inhibitor, leave the cells to rest and then inject them in limiting dilution assay, and we had a decreased number of cancer-initiating cells, indicating that the uh, inhibition of BMI1 was having an irreversible effect on the initiating cell fraction.
0: Now, this BMI inhibitor that you've discovered, uh, is that the kind of thing that could also possibly be used in humans?
1: This, um, This inhibitor we were very fortunate to obtain. It was from PTC. Therapeutics, a company in the US. The company was developing it for therapeutic use.
0: And PTC Therapeutics is advancing some of this research on its own with a similar compound from the one you tested that they're developing for the treatment of brain cancer. So is there something unique about colorectal cancer, or is this showing the fact that this kind of strategy could be helpful across many different kinds of solid tumors?
1: there's already evidence um, in brain cancer that BMI1 uh, likely has a very important role. So our thought is that this could be uh, applied potentially to a variety of solid tumors or subsets thereof.
0: So taking a step back from the specifics of the paper, it's noteworthy, I think, that this is not, it's a small molecule drug, sure, but it's not your standard chemotherapy-like approach to treating cancer that we've done for decades. This is totally different in a sense, because you're actually going after the the self-renewal of the cancer stem cells rather than just the growth of the bulk tumor.
1: The role of that self-renewal, although it's been investigated over the past 10 years in solid tumors, the actual ability to therapeutically target it and demonstrate efficacy in in uh, decreased uh, growth and decreased uh, ability to uh, self-renew has not been demonstrated. And this paper really takes um, the idea of targeting self-renewal and puts it to the forefront of maybe this is one way that we can look at tumors differently and targeting tumors by actually inhibiting their ability to self-renew.
0: Catherine O'Brien, coming up, TB or not TB? It all depends on the individual lung lesion. But first, let's raise a glass to the new year. If you're like me last week at some New Year's party, just as the clock struck midnight, you clinked glasses with friends and loved ones and sipped some fine champagne. Maybe you imbibed a few beers, Maybe you had a cocktail or two. Yum. Now, if you're also like me, you drink alcohol now and again, sure, but you're not addicted to drinking. Yet millions of people, sadly, are alcoholics. And that, says George Koob, is what makes alcohol so special. It's both an addictive drug and a tasty beverage. George Koob is a neuroscientist currently at the Scripps Research Institute in La Jolla, California. Later this month, though, he will move to Bethesda, Maryland, to become the new director of the NIH's National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, or NIAAA. That this institute would have a new director was not always a sure thing. A few years ago, it looked like the Alcohol Institute would merge with the NIH's National Institute on Drug Abuse, or NIDA. But the plan for the addiction Super Institute was scrapped, and rightfully so, says Koob.
3: Alcohol is a legal drug and it's incredibly prevalent and it's a drug that brings a lot of pleasure to a lot of people. So we have bars, we have legal places to ingest it, we have places to buy it, we have uh, concoctions of alcohol that some find very tasty and so as a result, I think it's unique and I think just that alone makes it deserve its own institute. That's my personal opinion.
0: That may be Coob's opinion, and the opinion of the NIH leadership, but there are still many critics who would rather see the NIAAA eliminated as a standalone institute. So does that make Coob nervous?
3: From that perspective, no, I'm not nervous. Am I nervous about directing
0: a budget of
3: $460 million? You bet.
0: <laughs> Even though NIAAA and NIDA will remain separate entities, NIH director Francis Collins has called for a, quote, functional integration between the two institutes. Koob says that even before he starts his new job, he and NIDA director Nora Volka already have a plan in place for how to achieve that.
3: She and I see many areas where we could cooperate, collaborate, integrate, and, and really help facilitate the movement of both fields.
0: Koob made his name in the scientific community, both in the study of alcoholism and by studying addiction to other substances, so he really sees the value in research that cuts across the addiction spectrum.
3: Alcohol research can inform drug abuse research, and drug abuse research can inform alcohol research, and I think that in the past has not been uh, integrated as well as it should to the benefit of both endeavors.
0: You can read my full interview with George Kube in the January issue of Nature Medicine. Go. Now, besides alcohol's psychotropic properties, there's also a very physiological effect of drinking. It makes you have to pee. For healthy people, the kidneys will filter the excess fluids and waste products out of the blood while retaining components the body needs, like proteins, but for people with chronic kidney disease, proteins can pass through the usual filters and escape into urine. This phenomenon is known as proteinuria. Two years ago, Sumant Chu and his colleagues at the University of Alabama at Birmingham reported in the pages of Nature Medicine that a protein called angiopoietin-like 4 mediates this proteinuria. In that study, they showed that specialized cells in the kidneys secreted angiopoietin-like 4 and the protein was localized in the kidney. But now, reporting again in Nature Medicine, Sumant Chu has found another form of the same protein, one with a different pattern of attached sugar components. And this second form of angiopoietin-like 4 is actually circulating
4: throughout the body. This protein, the circulating protein, is not mostly produced by the kidneys, but is produced by other organs in the body uh, like the skeletal muscles, the heart, uh, and the adipose tissue in response to proteinuria. Well, what then is this other form of the protein doing? This circulating form of this protein will now go and, uh, will now go and bind to the kidney, uh, to the outer layer of the filtering units that, uh, that are known as glomeruli, and it will actually reduce the protein area. The side effect of this is that this protein also binds to other sites in the body, uh, where it increases the levels of a uh, of a lipid called triglyceride in the blood. So the side effect of the attempt uh, to reduce the proteinuria is that these patients then get high blood triglyceride levels. Uh, so the protein, while it
0: brings down the protein levels, it boosts up the fat levels? Absolutely. And so this is a natural uh, mechanism in the body. Now you show in this paper that angiopoietin-like 4 actually engages in a couple of
4: different feedback loops. Can you describe what you found? The feedback loops uh, are best uh, explained as one that starts with the area and results in production of this angiopoietin-like 4 from these other organs. and then goes to reduce the proteinuria. So that is the major feedback loop. The second feedback loop is when uh, certain levels of of a specialized uh, lipid in the blood called fatty acid goes up and promotes the production of angioportal like 4, that then goes back to slow the production of angioportal-like 4. So this loop is, is more localized and is best viewed as a break, whereas the previous loop is best uh, viewed as the accelerator. So under normal circumstances, the angioportal-like 4 is acting to reduce proteinuria through the kind of accelerator function, whereas its own levels are being reduced Uh, by uh, the brake-like localized feedback loop.
0: And keeping with the car analogy, I guess if you really want to treat the proteinuria, you got to go fast. Like you'd be driving on a highway, but these brakes are are putting you
4: more like you're driving in a school zone? That's absolutely correct. So we actually did something about that in that we re-engineered this protein, uh, the human form of this protein, in a manner that it would ignore the brake and only respond to the accelerator loop. So we made uh, recombinant proteins, uh, and when we injected them, uh, we found that they did reduce the proteinuria, but not affect the blood uh, triglyceride levels. Oh, so it's not only that the triglycerides
0: aren't shutting it down, but, but it's also not even driving up their levels.
4: And that is the unique benefit of using or testing these proteins in future for clinical trials. So far, we have tested them in animal models of two fairly common forms of kidney disease. One is diabetic nephropathy, and the other is called focal sclerosis. And so we will test them in the future with other forms of kidney disease as well.
0: Sumant Moving on from the kidney, we end this month now in the lung, where infections of tuberculosis take hold. But whereas some people with TB in their lungs get sick, with symptoms of coughing, chest pain, night sweats, and often death, the vast majority of people with TB in their lungs actually remain symptom-free for years. Why some infections become active while others remain latent has been a question that has long perplexed scientists, says Sarah Fortune a microbiologist at the Harvard School of Public Health, and the author of a new study in Nature Medicine that attempted to tease this apart.
2: This is one of the fundamental mysteries in TB. Why it is that 90% of people who are going to be infected with TB will never get sick, and 10% will get sick. And obviously what we want to do is learn how to take those 10% who are going to get sick and shift them into the 90% who are never going to get sick. But the problem is we don't understand what distinguishes people who have latent infection and will always have latent infection from those who are going to get sick. So
0: to understand that you used a model, the Sinomalgus macaque, before we get into the study results, tell me about that model. Do we see the same things in the monkeys that we see in people when it comes to latent versus active infection?
2: So yes, we and our collaborators at the University of Pittsburgh um, work with cinnamologous macaques and they are the only animal model that recapitulates the variable course of human disease. So um, if macaques are infected with a very low dose of bacteria, some macaques will get sick and some macaques will control the infection um, and develop latent TB. And they allow us a really special window into trying to understand what happens in human tuberculosis.
0: In this study, you actually looked in these infected monkeys at their individual lesions of the bacteria, and that's kind of different than what you'd see in other kind of diseases where you, I suppose, would consider more of a global response.
2: That's exactly right. The prevailing model in the field in terms of thinking about why some animals would get sick and some would not has been one of global differences. And typically that's thought of in terms of host susceptibility. Um, If I am infected with TB and you are infected with TB and I get sick and you do not, that you were resistant and I am not. And the implication of that is that in the little sites of infection, of TB infection, all of the sites of infection would follow similar trajectories. But instead what we found is Um, that multiple sites of infection are established, but they all follow really independent trajectories, suggesting that the determinant of disease outcome is local, not global.
0: Is it just a crapshoot then that, you know, you just get unlucky, the immune system misses a spot, and and thus you get sick? Or is there something different between the monkeys where, where the bacteria thrive and where they don't?
2: So I don't think we know, but actually that is exactly the question that this work sets up. Is it stochastic failure of the immune response or is it, is there something a little more programmed about immune failure that you could teach the immune system to do better than it already does? And I don't think we know the answer to that.
0: What are we learning from those sites where the immune system is clearing the tuberculosis bacterium and, and those sites where it's not? And, and thus maybe where we might try to tweak the immune system To our favor um, as we look ahead to therapeutics or vaccines?
2: Vaccines. Um, I think uh, you have framed the question perfectly, that the way to build a TB vaccine is to look at the sites of success, immune success and immune clearance, and try to understand what makes them special relative to the sites of immune failure, and then teach the immune system how to expand on success. But we don't really know how to do that now. Um, This is really just early days. But it does have big lessons in terms of how we need to approach the problem because the problem in the TB field has really been approached as if it is global immune success or failure. And a lot of what we do in people is just take blood and profile blood and, you know, blood from people who are going to get sick or who are sick or who have latent infection. And what our work in macaques is teaching us is that these blood-based profiles are sampling a lot of different sites of disease, and maybe the ones that are special that we really need to learn from, which are the sites of immune failure relative to immune success, aren't going to be accessible if we're just looking at a kind of a peripheral sampling like blood.
0: So it's almost like this study's not really yet showing us the way to a vaccine, but saying, hey, maybe we've been doing it all wrong all along. That's
2: exactly right. That's exactly right. So I think that this is just a very, fundamental description of where the important determinants of disease outcome lie, and that they suggest that we're looking in the wrong places to understand the importance of determinants of disease outcome, and that we need to really have a lesional perspective in order to understand what we're going to need to do to build a TB vaccine.
0: Sarah Fortune. Well, that's it for this episode of the Nature Medicine Podcast, but there's plenty more to be found in the January 2014 issue of the journal including a review of the book Spitting Blood, The History of Tuberculosis. You can find links to that or anything else you heard on the show on our website, nature.com naturemedicine. As always, we appreciate any comments, criticisms, or other feedback about the show. You can reach us at medicine at us.nature.com. Until next time, I'm Ailey Dalgan. Thanks for listening.